So it, it depends on which era of Death Sentence you're listening to. So either if you're listening to four years ago, this would be a Gareth saying, welcome to your Death Sentence. If you listen to anything after that, it's me doing some stupid cold open joke with Langdon. But today I'm not going to do either one of those things because I have two very special guests. I have Craig and Adam from the Acid Horizon podcast, Theory podcast. If you're unfamiliar, uh, I've been on their podcast a couple of times, but they also do fantastic work around um, Deleuzean, Foucauldian, and in general, like postmodern understandings of power, control, the body, cybernetics, leftism, what have you. Um, and I'm very happy to have them here today. So Craig and Adam, if you want to introduce yourself, because we're not recording the video, we're just recording the audio so the listeners uh, can know your, uh, <laughs> your voice. Uh, Craig, you can go first. Oh, sure. So I'm Craig, and I guess you could say I am the founder of the Acid Horizon podcast, although things mushroomed up in the spring of 2020 when I met Will and Adam in an online space. You know, around that time, I think many people migrated to Discord servers and various places like that. I just thought it was very interesting that philosophy became the sort of rendezvous point during the pandemic and many people gathered around thought you know thinking mm. together and um it was wonderful you know meeting so many different people and it was around that time and and this is kind of the spiel that i give you know at, that i gave at our book launch and i typically give on the podcast about our book i think what was significant and important about that time despite the tragedy of the coronavirus was is that it created this rupture in the order of things whereby folks like us who are interested in philosophy or or what have you had a sort of moment either to get reoriented or to orient differently towards something else i i had the fortune at that time of you know working a union job which allowed me to keep my job despite the fact that i really wasn't on the clock as much as i was supposed to be or ordinarily supposed to be, um, which gave me the opportunity to experiment with the idea of doing a podcast. And given that my master's degree research was on Deleuze and Guattari and Kafka and all sorts of uh, post-structuralist and post-modern stuff, as you said, um, it allowed me to explore this possibility and, of course, imitate many of the favorite podcasts that I had. And unfortunately, I wasn't acquainted with Death Sentence at the time. I don't know if you guys were going <laughs> in 2020, but yeah. um, I'm glad that I, I'm glad this is a way that people can can find each other. I mean, often there's a sort of disparaging image of like what a podcast is. And um, I mean, there are many good reasons for that. But I think in the philosophy and you know left wing politics community, this is a way to get connected with like minded people. and it's just nice to have my headspace crowded with so many different and interesting voices and mm -hmm. forcing me to think about things that I wouldn't ordinarily think about. And I think by meeting Will and Adam, this, this actually sort of institutionalized this desire of mine in the form of a podcast. And it was around that time, actually it was quite early on in the podcast, and, I, and I'll definitely leave it to Adam to tell you about the sort of mental episode that he had that that brought about the book, but it was, it was, <laughs> it was, um, it was not only a, a sort of political and philosophical solidarity, but, you know, a, a burgeoning friendship and an, and an emotional kind of solidarity that happened around that time. And you get to know people like podcast hosts and co-hosts in, in a very sort of intimate and different way, especially if you're working within this particular field. So yeah. um, I, I say all this to qualify the fact that what, 
we now have as anti-Oculus, a philosophy of escape, is motivated in large part not only by the theory itself and not only about the, the order of things and the sort of current political conjecture, but also about the way a certain kind of manifest ha- uh, re- relationship manifests in 2023, where people have access to this technology. And you know, despite the sort of disparaging things that we say about connectivity, cyberspace, and, and so forth, there is a positive t- dimension to that that is kind of the shadow of the book in some ways. Yeah, and so, yeah, I'll just kind of leave it at that, and, and I'll let Adam give his intro. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's it's really good to be on Death Sense because this podcast, amongst others, definitely kept me uh, at least somewhat as like a regulative negative feedback mechanism from going totally batshit during the lockdowns. And it allowed us, you know, of course, Blasted Horizon to poke so many, not only hosted the show, of course, with Eden, also Gareth, we had on for zero books, but also, I mean, finding out about, I mean, for example, uh, uh, Brian Catling's work. Um, we had we got Andy from Kana on on the basis of listening to the your discussion with mm-hmm. him, and of course also just the bands. I'm really into the band Fluids now, which I first heard <laughs> yeah. of as a as a part of this podcast. But that's just, that's my that's my 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 starstruckness. So just back ended there for a bit and talk about the book. I mean, Craig always does this thing where he's like, yeah. This book came out of Adam going a bit nuts. And the problem is, is that when you talk about a book of cyber theory created by something of a, a mental rupture, let's say, there's only one person people think about. Uh, he was the subject of a recent <laughs> episode on this podcast. I'd like to clarify that yeah. I am not. I, I am not Nick Land. I mean, people, many people ask me about uh, the T-shirt when I'm wearing. It says I'm not Nick Land. It's raising a lot of questions that are already answered by the shirt. But, <laughs> I mean... Let's let's listen to the episode. The episode basically was was, I think that the pandemic, or particularly the pandemic in its phase that it was in twenty twenty, because of course it's still ongoing. Um, the phase of it really made philosophy a paranoid mode of, of writing for me. Not in the sense of you know there's a control. We think about control. We're thinking about there is someone controlling this. You know this very conspiratorial. Um, obviously, very obviously, virgin anti-Semitic conspiracy theory sort of territory. That there is a group personality and intentionality behind this, but more thinking about habits of governments, habits of categorization, and where they end up being policed in terms of the general sort of space of, I guess, not space of reason, but the general ethos and categories and norms of governance today. So one of the, so my work has always been even before I was in Asset Horizon about the limits of essentialism, the essence of a thing, the set of qualities that defines this as exactly what it is, you know, the essence of it. And this is mostly due to my work on the work of Max Stirner, which is now my, my doctoral research, I guess. But the, the laying it back to the pandemic, there's two things, really. In the lockdowns, one, um, there's a lot of snitching. I was lucky enough to yeah. spend the first few lockdowns in like suburban, uh, sort of like edge of London, England, and the police eventually had to tell people to stop fucking calling each other up, saying, you know, this person's been out for two hours of a walk this week. That's breaking the rules, you know, this obsession with the rules and policing and snitching and the horrible ways in which in certain parts of London, um, people were just being beaten up and ticketed for going to work or, you know, the, of course, applied within the entirely active lines of racial capitalist policing. And there's also a question of what is essential, what counts as the essence, like what's an, what's an essential thing for you to buy? So I remember the, the police were shutting down certain so-called ethnic food aisles because that wasn't essential, mm-hmm. that's luxury, despite yeah. the fact that is the basic food stuff for millions of people in this country, you know. And so the politics of what is, essence, what is essential 
and the politics of population management, population governance, all came to the forefront. And we don't have to go, you know, the full agamben on this to nonetheless see that there are apparatuses that are worth thinking about. And this is also the time in which, of course, many people were thrown into the online. And there's a, there's a, there's a risk here when you say that many, many people were thrown into the online, because mostly when people say that, they mean, you know, the middle classes who can work from home, from office jobs, you know, the Graeberite bullshit jobs and just other jobs too. But when we say in a book that we live in the, a cybernetic period of governance or an intensifying cybernetic kind of governance, we don't just mean everyone's on their phones all the time or, or everyone's you know, on Twitter too much, although that is a part of it because you, know, you make data for these companies, you're doing an employment work, but also the ways in which you're seemingly online is become increasingly offline. You know, what, what do people do? They, they order takeaway. You know, take, what pe most takeaways, your, your boss is an app. You know, your boss is not, you have to use a very particular kind of travel route. Steering, you know, cybernetics comes, Kubernetes comes from steering, piloting. And the politics of the mechanization, automation, which is in the old term, cybernation of movement was very central to what we was, what we was doing here. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. So I want to talk about the book because yes. you kind of conjured the book a few times. And I just want to uh, catch the listeners up with what we're talking about. So Acid Horizon recently did a very cool move um, that was liked by all uh, by publishing a book called Anti-Oculus, A Philosophy of Escape. And uh, I found it very funny that when you were doing your book launch at, at Hausman's, the person who introduces the book kind of had the same challenge as I'm going to have, which is to classify it into a genre, right? We have to do that, even though we're all postmodernists. Uh, that's still our instinct. Mm. Uh, so this is a mix between a philosophical text, um, theory fiction. One of the one of the chapters is uh, written from the perspective of a corporation uh, submitting mm. its its fictional report, um, and and um, analysis, right, literary and and otherwise analysis of other philosophers. Um, personally, uh, it's a brilliant book. Um, I haven't read it cover to cover. Uh, but I, I've read it pretty extensively for this episode, and I really enjoyed my time. And um, Adam, as I wrote to you, I mostly I loved the intro. Um, mm -hmm. I think a good introduction is such a rare thing to come across, especially in the philosophy space. And the intro to this book, so listener, if you're reading and you're listening, sorry, and, and you want to read this book and you're kind of maybe daunted, you don't usually read philosophical works, just start with the intro. Um, and I think there's like a world in there alone to discuss and talk about. And the first one is about cybernetics. And mm -hmm. I'm, I think we briefly touched on cybernetics when I was a guest on your uh, podcast when we talked about Solopunk, mm -hmm. um, because I am fascinated by the confusion around the term cybernetics. Mm -hmm. And confusion, I, don't, I mean it in the, in the literal sense of um, like a proliferation of meanings. Not mm -hmm. that there's one true meaning and everybody gets it wrong, but how many different ways there are to use the word cybernetics so maybe you could give us like uh, um, a short version of how you use the word cybernetics and well most importantly i think what is the departure between your usage of cybernetics and the colloquial use of the word cybernetics mm. so just to start off with what is cybernetics it's a it's a multidisciplinary field that comes out of particularly military technologies it's very spooky stuff let's be honest in terms of you know um the Rand Corporation, the Macy's conferences, these are all name drops. But I think what instead to describe what cybernetics actually is, 
Let's just break it down into its main concepts, which are feedback loops. We have so cybernetics, first and foremost, analyzes systems and the ways in which they regulate and can regulate themselves. And one of the mechanisms that they use is, well, uh, feedback loops, feedback processes. So the first one, the most famous one, which is defines most cybernetics, really, is a negative feedback. This is, comes from the work of a guy called Norbert Wiener, who writes this book, Cybernetics. And negative feedback is essentially it 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 goes back to the origin of the term itself, which is from Kubernetes in Greek means steering. So essentially, the system, let's say, the system is made up of you and the boat, and mediated by the steering wheel. If you want to go to the right, but you don't want to go so far to the right that you end up like circling back on yourself infinitely, you move the steering wheel to the right, the boat goes right, and then you gradually move it the steering wheel to the left in order to taper the excess. You're moving against the direction of travel of the system by move and therefore you know, by responding to its present performance, which is moving rightwards, and that present performance feeds back into future performance because you know that you're eventually going to have to move it slightly to the left so you can go on the same course. That is negative feedback. That is in thermostats, you know, the most, that's the most famous cybernetic example of a system where you, you know, you're, you're generating heat to maintain it at a certain level. You periodically turn off a generation of heat to maintain it at a stable level. The the, one of the, the kind of the, the revolution that transforms into the cybernetic revolution is the revolution that rather than thinking about um, power engineering, power engineering, which is you know, how do we get shit to heat up? What do we got to burn? What's the best thing to burn? We're moving to now something called communications engineering, where how does the system know when to intervene upon itself to regulate behavior? The shift from um, cybernetics is ultimately a shift towards thinking about things in terms of the problem of information. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the first cybernetic machine was called a predictor. Norbert Wiener was tasked with, like, how do we know where to shoot these Nazi planes down? Because we know how to shoot a plane down. We know that a rocket will penetrate the plane that goes boom, fine. We just don't know where they are. The problem is now information, not the mechanism of intervention. And this translates also to, for example, insulin pumps, endocrinological regulation. You, you need to know when to inject insulin for the right amount of blood sugar. And we have cybernetic machines to do this. A system is made between, say, an insulin pump and the body or um, a machine, which uh, like a phone app you can get, and a sensor on your arm. That sensor solves the problem of information, and then that determines how you can regulate through negative feedback. Your, you know, your, your present blood sugar level determines the future action you will take, and that information feeds into the system. Information defined here by the cyberneticist Gregory Patterson as a difference which makes a difference, practically speaking. You know. Then, of course, we have the second type of feedback loop, which is positive which is the one all of the cyber theorists from the 90s got really horny about, you know, that it's a vicious circle, things go out of control, it, it actually accelerates in the ref, you know, so infections. One person gets affected, then suddenly 20, 30, 40, 50, 5,000, uh, and then and this is what the cyber theorists thought they could do. They thought they could accelerate the process in favour of its own destruction. Mm -hmm. We all see how that went. And then the last one, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, so no, the no, last no. one that's have next one is feed forward, which is the thing we're focusing on, which is feed forward is when you try to preempt error in advance in a system. The problem is error needs to occur in order to correct it, so these systems are liable to fail. Now, what we want to think about is feed forward systems that learn historically through feedback. So the history of regulatory policing and governance. Sorry, that's it. 
So I was going to spin off from that and Craig ask you about, you know, uh, you said in the intro about 2020, like the moment in which you met. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's, I mean, obviously there's the, the surface level reading of COVID as a very powerful manifestation of cybernetics, so all of, like the reaction of the state and the World Health Organizations and so on. Do you think that COVID made cybernetics more um, intelligible, more perceptible by the, the common person or did they do the opposite and like obfuscate its technologies of control? Mm. So this question is directed at me. It's you as the person who introduced 2020 is like the moment <laughs> in which Asset Horizon was born, right? Like the moment mm. of the pandemic. Is that is that because mm. there was something that was being exposed and you felt like things were rising to the surface or on the contrary, were things escaping you and you felt the need to like seize them? Mm. Well, I don't know if I feel qualified to quantify um, or even, you know, sort of measure in, in some sort of meaningful way, like what the force and power and sophistication of, you know, any given cybernetic system is like at any given time. But I think part of the logic that we try to articulate in the book is that whenever a kind of shift occurs, or even maybe there's no shift at all, but a certain structure or a certain abstraction is deployed cybernetically, there's always going to be lines of escape. And I think what had happened at that time um, there was a temporal shift. I, I, I mean, just just things like this. I mean, uh, here in the United States and California, I remember that they had done me- or maybe it was Oregon, but they had done measures of bird songs um, in the absence of the din of traffic. For example, mm. now they could hear bird songs more loudly, and I think this was also the case of like mammals at sea, like orcas and and what have you. And it's just interesting to think about, for example, the output of the totality of not only our cybernetic system, but our industrial edifice and so forth as producing noises and signals and, 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 and what have you. And in the withdrawal of that, there's an elevation of birdsong. And then there's also this, this instigation to go think together online. I, I think that's kind of a ju- beautiful juxtaposition in some ways. Interesting. Yeah, I think in general, like feedback and noise that's an interesting relationship that Death Sentence especially would be interested in because of our musical uh, interests, right? Yeah. I had a discussion with uh, a few episodes uh, back with David Burke, who is a researcher of, of metal mm-hmm. music, right, about yeah. excess, right? And in this, in this case, it's interesting to see, you know, any kind of noise can be described as an excess, right? An excess of movement, of a- energy, and so on. But then the difference between pure noise and music is a difference of cybernetics, mm-hmm. right? It's a mm-hmm. difference of interpretation and control of the signal and what it does. It speaks, it stops, it silences, it's, it's noises and so on. So that also brings me back to podcasting. Right? Mm-hmm. Like In a sense, there are many more voices, to use a 19th century term, on the ether, right? There's a lot more crackling online um, and people making their voices heard, which actually brings me to a question I wanted to ask you, what did the transition into a book do to your discussions amongst yourselves, right? You, you suddenly shifted um, or retranslated your, your discourse into a different medium, right? Which mm-hmm. does different, completely different things in podcasts, right? And has completely different instruments in podcasts. Did that change like how you, I'm trying to think in my shoes, like what would happen if I would write a book with Langdon and Gareth, right? Like what would mm-hmm. that do to our discussion? So what did you find when you released the book? Like how did, or started working on it? Did it change like the way that you spoke to each other? Maybe I'll let Adam speak on that first since he 
provided some of the incipient writings, but I, I certainly have a reaction to that. There's something in the format of the show which does lend itself to writing. In so, I mean, you know, in that, you, we, I mean, we always have to read every read something for a show, you know, and then we've seen that certain tendencies are interests and where they pull together and where they diverge. And when it comes to like the stuff we end up reading, it almost like this book was kind of epigenetically sort of unfolding out of those series of reading, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, in a sense of you know, I'm suddenly moving towards cybernetics, but I'm getting informed by, say, Will's stuff on disability theory and my own stuff on anarchism. And then uh, we move on to the Nietzschean element with Craig and particularly this psychological Hillmanian bent, which feeds into discussions of the dynamics of the psyche. And it all does end up pooling together. And there are some points at which we, as we were writing it, we were still trying, how do we pull, you know, tie this all up in a, and neat bow and does it need to be because i mean that i mean there's a history of, of podcasts doing books which sometimes some ends up writing like um and this isn't any shade of course to our comrades over at chapo but the chapo guide to revolution we didn't want to write a guide to we want to write a program you know i mean of course they did that quite tongue-in-cheek but it's it could be like you know like um an end of the year best of written rendered in text kind of a novelty aspect <laughs> thing here and we, we didn't want to do that we wanted to write uh a, a serious, not serious, but you know, a, a collection of here's all the things we've learned doing this. Because if we haven't learned something and be able to provide these concepts, as a, it, the first thing was a, a manual or toolkit, really, as opposed to like a a, a treatise, you know. <laughs> it, it makes me think, like, why can't philosophers or collectives of philosophers write songs and everybody has their own verse? That's kind of what we did in some sense. And, and the refrain is is you know, uh, this kind of cybernetic concept that transforms over the, the different chapters. And I think um, just to go back to what Adam was saying about doing the podcast itself, I think we unwittingly created our own sort of localized archive to draw from. And I think not only in writing the book, but in editing the book, we were able to pull from various strands. And it, it's almost like an adventure, like a role-playing game. You, you collect these items along the way and you find their potential usages as you develop the story. And I think that was, was quite useful. And also it, it allowed us to see, for example, like when I was reading Adam's writings, of course, there's these the sort of manifest, very explicit sentences, but there's also things that aren't being said, but I know what's motivating those thoughts because we've worked together in this other capacity. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a way in which the regime of, the podcast intersects with the writing of the book. And there's these lines that are imperceptible that cross over. Um, they manifest as sentences, but in some cases you might not know the, the sort of, you know, invisible determinants that lie behind a particular paragraph or a particular turn of phrase or um, a certain concept that we've developed. Yeah. It's almost like uh, inside jokes, right? Like there's a version yeah. of the book that's like, annotated by you guys which is all of the references and inside the jokes that you're making in the book i find that fascinating this is kind of a divergence and i'll go back to the book in a second but like um collabor collaborative writing in mm. science fiction um mm. so like the most famous one being robert silverberg and isaac asimov who wrote nightfall together and nightfall is an interesting example because there are three versions of it there's the short one there's the long one there's an abridged one like who, which one is the is the real nightfall um, but then also you mentioned uh, role-playing games. So there's um, Dragonlance, which was written by by two people. Mm. So there's like, it, do you need to break apart the the authors? Do you need to understand where it is mm. Adam speaking or Craig speaking or Will speaking? And when there's a 
fourth entity, which is like the Hydra of, of everything <laughs> right. you, you discuss with each other. And I think that's really interesting. But your book does very, something very interesting, which is unlike a lot of philosophy books, which is actually talk about the actual world, right? I don't want to use the word real, which is charged in the spaces that mm. we're talking about, but things that are actually happening. And I kind of wanted to make sure this conversation also does that and mm. moves away just from the abstract discussion of the book and also mm. some of the subjects which it um, analyzes and maybe introduce some new ones. So the first one, mm. and, and this is, listener, I'm sorry if it's not interesting to you, but I had to um, ask about it. In the intro, you take a pot shot at Red Plenty. And when mm. you uh, cite Red Plenty, so let me read the full sentence. Uh, the utopians demand we refrain from such a line of thought with a promise that liberation lies on the other side of automation's invasion of every facet of life. Capital will not be tricked into producing a red plenty. Such a view is a trickle-down transcendence of capitalism. Now, when you say red plenty, you conjure the ghost of Mark Fisher, right? Mm -hmm. um, who was the, well, not, I don't know if the main proponent, but at least the most famous and vocal one. He wrote a, fa a very famous article after Corbyn's second or third loss, I don't know, one of Corbyn's losses, where he talked about red abundance and red plenty and so on. And I think when you release a book on repeater in the spaces mm. that you're operating in, uh, mm. capitalist realism and Mark Fisher in general are kind of haunting the work. So mm. can you speak a bit about Fisher, how you intersect with him, how, what you think about his theory in relation to the stuff that you um, write about? What do you think he mm -hmm. had to, might have said about cybernetics? Like, I, 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 all those spaces are really interesting to me. You've, you're <laughs> talking to the right person. Um, no, no, no it's so, so just cards on the table. I've recently finished a, a foreword to Mark Fisher's PhD thesis, mm. um, Flatline Construct, which is about theory fiction. It's, uh, it's about cybernetics. He wrote it at the time of the CCRU. And for this foreword, I had to sort of go back and provide sort of a summary of the kind of atmosphere of cybernetic theory. And the, the critique of Red Plenty, it wasn't necessarily aimed at, at, at Fisher, but I, 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 he is very much towards, towards particularly his later days, reinviting re this, this kind of Marcusean, if we take control of these apparatuses, they can produce the most for us. But in terms of the idea of tricking capitalism into doing so, I, I don't think that's Fisher's position. Fisher needs to think we have to do some sort of revolution or some sort of like seizing yeah. off this. That the particular kind of dislike we, we have is for a particular strand of left accelerationism. Um, and it's probably, it's, it's bygone at this point, I guess, which is the kind of the manifesto for an accelerationist politics, this dislike of local on the ground movements in favor of this kind of, we make a big think tank and we can convince the capitalists we're going to produce more than them and they magically give up the power because it's all about production, isn't it? Somewhat of a flattening, of course, and neither Nick Janoszek or Alex Williams really holds these positions anymore. But there was this kind of, the thing, about, the thing we don't like about cyber theory is how much hype there is for the cybernetic. And and even I mean, even Mark himself knew that the hype around the cybernetic didn't happen. You know, the, the stuff in Flatline Construct, the CCRU, it collapsed because we, we found ourselves on the side of more machineries than ever before. And this, this critique of red plenty, it's a red plenty in the sense of we can just have it all in the same way. Not in the sense of, you know, primitivism, but there was a, a sense of reflection after Corbynism for me in which you can see, you know, look, people, you know, there's certain concessions that people wanted, which 
ultimately, which were obviously concessions you need to demand, particularly around stuff like healthcare, but it needed to go further than that. It couldn't just be we fulfill the promises of nineties social mobility ideology. That you will get if you went, you know, if you went to university, you deserve that, you know. And we're gonna nationalise these things, you know, nationalise I mean there's a joke in the UK which was nationalising weatherspoons. Um, <laughs> which was this really cheap pub chain. Uh, it's you know, pretty you know, really cheap beer. It's, it's very good if you if it's the only pub you can afford. I mean, hell, I've been in that position. Go for it. But nationalizing it is kind of like we nationalize this, we nationalize that, we take all this over, we make it the people's X. And I'm like, well, you know, the wage relations that have to maintain for people to to make it that cheap, right? So you know, to make it so that you can nationalize spoons. Mm-hmm. It kind of sounds like we're we're wading into a territory of you know. Only seeing social democracy as the radical point there. And the perspective of a red plenty, at least, I mean, of course, if there is a red plenty, I'd love to be proven wrong on this. I mean, we're not saying definitively, <laughs> but this idea of left accelerationism in this particular mode of a techno positivism, uh, which was kind of the, the retreat from the more radical side, which is also wrong, by the way, the, you know, the sort of the radical sort of early left landian side. We felt it was too much of a hype train you know that we can just turn on the machine forever ramp it up and we'll do better than the capitalists i'm like th- these machines have very set functions sometimes some of them we should probably decide to get rid of i mean also not all cybernetics are bad of course you know insulin endocological regulation depending on who has the autonomy to use it of course is good air traffic control should be less planes but i mean i'm not going to get rid of that apparatus <laughs> <No>. <laughs> podcast too we're we're pretty keen on that um <laughs> Uh, we but, won't abolish ourselves, you see. Oh, damn. <laughs> well, I, I would say also, I'm, I know that you haven't made it to the end of the book. I don't know if you've scanned the chapter or not, but um, one of the very last concepts that we address in the book is capitalist realism, mm-hmm. that the idea of cybernetics, that you know, the sort of global totality, the, the total global cybernetic apparatus is extremely involved with the our political imagination to the extent that, you know, what we understand as an image of the future is something that can be easily appropriated or overcoded by, you know, the current state of things, capitalism as we understand it. And I know that, you know, in the context of this conversation where you've invoked a lot of magical metaphors and magical words like conjuring and things like that. And one of the sort of agons that I tried to create at the end of the book was how how can we think about the manifestation and the creation of a political imagination and its actualization in the face of the very forces that seek to define it in advance, to overcode our imagination with its impossibility, for example, or to see it as you know, dead on arrival. Um, that's that's a sort of implicit thread in the book. But one of the ways that we approach this is talking about, for example, <clears throat> how the um, the the predilection of psychoanalysis for a particular kind of monistic thinking um, has evolved over time into a, a a kind of pluralism. Like if you look at the trajectory, for example, from Freud to Jung. And then offshooting from Jung, you have these figures like James Hillman, and then you also have Deleuze and Guattari. And, and one of the things that, that we attempt to think in the book are the very conditions by which, you know, the, the sort of like crystalline prison of capitalist realism, how can it be broken apart? How can its weaknesses be exploited through this kind of explosion of multiplicity, an explosion of imagination, an explosion of, of 
of images and in a way that sort of su supersedes all of the modalities which have tried to trap images, codify them. And here I'm thinking about the institution of psychoanalysis, but perhaps not the spirit of psychoanalysis or the, you know, the, the things that motivated the, the, the creation of psychoanalysis. So for example, I, I don't go into this too deeply in the book, it is gestured at, but the way that Carl Jung created psychoanalysis as his own system of Jungian analysis is very different than the sort of psychological journey that he went on that is now evident in the Red Book and yeah. which was discovered much later. It, there's, there's a divergence between those two things in attempting to systematize the, the psyche, or at least the way that we understand. A, a divergence between the system, its qualification, yeah. and the actual experience that the person who formulated the system had. Absolutely. And so, so this tension underlies, I think, what, what I believe is the creation or the actualization of our political imagination. And with that said, you know, just to invoke Fisher once again, I don't use these words explicitly, but there's a little bit of a hint of maybe what Fisher meant by acid communism there. Like, how can we go on this new trip? How can we be collectively intoxicated or hallucinate together in the right way that would allow us to see these openings, these possibilities, and, you know, overcome, you know, the, the sort of set of determinations that constantly put us back in the, the territories that are already known under global capitalism. Super, super interesting. Uh, I think there's like an episode brewing in my head about <laughs> the corrosiveness of, of psychedelic influences on metal and fantasy and so on. We've talked, mm. we've talked about a lot about Michael Moorcock and people of that. Like, it's not weird for weirdness's sake. These people are trying to say something. Mm -hmm. um, and I, that's a very interesting um, connection. So from the uh, uh, hallucinatory potential of the future to, to our dreary and actual reality. Um, you recently also did an episode with Ian Allen Paul, who is a fascinating researcher, especially for me. The listeners know this, that I, I live in the US, but I'm Israeli. We also talked about this on your uh, podcast when I, when I was a guest. And of course, now we're seeing the... Um, it's not a new extermination, it's an intensification, intensification of the ongoing extermination of Palestinians in Palestine. And you had this really interesting discussion with Ian and Paul about the social uh, technologies that are um, being brought to bear in, in Gaza and the West Bank, um, technologies of codification and surveillance and identification and so on. And I wanted to ask you about something that you didn't talk about with Ian Allen Paul, I think I listened to the whole thing, but uh, there's a lot in there. Um, and I think you, you haven't talked about it because it's mostly been contained in Hebrew and it's on Israeli media. Mm. So now Israel, just to give you an introduction and also the listeners, Israel is in a very, um, not unprecedented because it already had this moment of reckoning in 73 around the Yom Kippur war and, and, and that is the intelligence uh, disaster there. It's now trying to reckon with what happened at a in October 7th, right? How is it possible that they don't know they're a paper tiger, as Mao said, right? They think mm -hmm. they're the most powerful and technologically advanced nation and army on the planet. So how is it possible that October 7th happened? And inside this uh, discussion, there's a very interesting persona, which is IDF observers. So these are mandatorily drafted, mostly women, who sit in front of the consoles that are wired into the cameras, drones, and the fence apparatus, and they analyze and interpret the datum 
right? The, the data, sorry. The, the raw data coming in. And that's literally their name in Hebrew is observers. And they, now it's coming out. Most of them were, by the way, um, on the front lines of the October 7th offensive because their bases are near to Gaza. Mm-hmm. By the way, why? Because the lines go beneath the ground and connect to the fence to have a live feed. You don't want a delay. You don't want it over Wi-Fi or anything. You want like a real connection. And a lot of them were, again, not combat soldiers. These are young women who weren't actually trained to be in combat, suddenly finding themselves in combat situations. And they've also started to blow whistles about the fact that they warned the IDF and the Israeli state apparatus for years that Hamas was planning something like the October 7th offensive. And no one listened to them. And I am just fascinated by this persona. An observer, an Oculus, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Unprecedented maybe in the modern era, like the most Oculus there is, with the mm-hmm. most tech, the most surveillance, trying to talk to the system that deployed it and to tell it, listen, this is going to happen. This rupture is about to occur. And for years, that voice of the end probe is not heard. Mm. I know I'm, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. Like, this is completely improvisational because I'm, I assume you didn't know about these people. But, like, what are your immediate reactions to that from your point of theory of vision and surveillance and, and identification? I mean, in terms of the... Oh, sorry, Craig, if you want to... No, no, by all means. Go ahead, Adam. I mean, it, it shows that with... Functionally, and if you want to draw like a diagram of the of the system of of, of, of Israeli sort of intelligence, I mean, these people are the, the sensor function. They are the sensor function, but ultimately, the the head, the determining principles of that system, the political goals of that system, mean that even if they take the system in, it depends whether that sig- you know it actually becomes signal or gets translated to a kind of noise, which ultimately you know over- completely obstructs the ability to actually do any of the counterinsurgency they're supposed to do. And I mean, this has been you know, for the incredible, incredibly cybernated nature of the Israeli military apparatus today, ultimately, there's in some sense at which the raw impunity. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. someone like Itamar, Itamar Ben Gavir has never had negative feedback in his life because <laughs> it is a positive feedback loop of these utterly genocidal weirdos becoming part, yeah. you know, just taking that completely attaining an ideological hegemony. And there's not really a negative feedback mechanism. I mean, with that much, it's why Hasbara has been so shit recently because they've won so much. There's nothing. There's not really an object by which causes them to rethink their tactics. The, the raw impunity loose upon it even spreads into those systems themselves. And it's and even in terms of recognizing and seeing and sensing and capturing insurgent forces, it it it's weird because almost like the problem of information has been solved, but actually the mechanism itself has been. Um, so 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 overcoded by these by this kind of populist imagination or well, not populist sorry fascist imagination because people when they, sometimes when they say populist they they actually just mean fascist because fascist, um, yeah. they invoke the people but the people are missing and it's all been drowning in its own its own abstraction to such an extent that they can't recognize these or if they recognize them they don't believe it because otherwise it's kind of letting the side mm. down to say anything i mean mm. give another example of course from from hebron the the wolf program you know the the wolf pack database the facial recognition you can put facial recognition technologies in the hands of whoever you want if they're programmed by racists and used by them they're not going to be very good at detecting anything 
One, because they're trying to do it in the first place, and two, because they're all the same anyway. It's a flat abstraction. And if it's a flat abstraction backed by a severe weaponry, then it doesn't, you know, you can simply just exterminate your way out of any problem if you're in that position, according to them. And they find, they're finding the hard limit of this because they have been fully subsumed. They think, you know, they think the map is the territory in a way. And this is the violence of colonialism. You know, the map is a territory and you try to, it's like the Borges thing, you just strangulate the world underneath. Applying the very incisions and the borders of the map into the actual bodies of the social body of of Palestine, and indeed the bodies of those people themselves. And so this this complete disconnect between the channel, the information flows, and the political coordinations that are meant to use these apparatuses, I think, does speak. To, I mean, this is why we we didn't write it from the perspective of you know the, the third part of you know, ocularity. You didn't write the perspective of a, a political entity that's using it. We wrote from the perspective of like a McKinsey operative, like a McKinsey, like a think tank. Because you can use all of these, and these are like this is what's on the menu. But if your politics is based, if you've basically sort of eaten your own semiotic refuge, you know, refuse, mm -hmm. and you know, <laughs> giving yourself like you know, but uh, sponge reform and sepulchre for uh, for your own political ideology, you're not going to be able to use it, and that's really mm -hmm. the. Where suddenly the map, the territory comes alive in quite a violent so, manner. So the absence of resistance makes the circuitry short. Is, is what you're saying? Like the Israeli apparatus yeah. has had so little internal resistance to itself that it just assumes that the entire world will will collapse in, into its paradigm and how it sees things. Mm. Yeah, mm. If, if you're propped up enough, you can basically act like idealism is real for a while. It's the same thing in the UK. The, the UK we worked on the premise of you know. Basically, basically idealism that the British spirit will somehow power through things, and because there's not even any, even the even the and this is what the, this is what the accelerationists wanted to do really in in the nineties. They thought that if you could ram things through faster than the internal regulative mechanisms could uh, could hold them back, then there would be some sort of explosive aspect. And it's just a matter of you know driving it in someone's favour. But here it is aspect of a pure positive feedback loop of impunity. Mm. Yeah, maybe just to extend Adam's analysis a little bit. Um, I mean, it's almost analogous in some ways to a kind of cognitive dissonance, if you think about it, right? We're, we're getting this feedback on the front lines. We have an immediate, direct, ocular connection with what's happening uh, at the border of Gaza, but yet it's not being processed in some ways. And um, I'm, I'm going to risk a, a, a theoretical armchair analysis here, but and we can work on this. Uh, you know, we're, we're reading uh, Deleuze's book on Nietzschean philosophy right now for our reading group, and we're, we're looking at this concept of resentiment. And I think there's something analogous that happens in the concept, the way that Deleuze sees it, that can be applied here. Because the, the person of resentiment, the person who is so overcome by hatred, who's the hatred of life, and in this case, a kind of genocidal hubris, might be so infected and poisoned by it that that the, those those particles, those traces of hatred, can flood the the sensory apparatus to the extent that it cannot bring the information back to the locus. And um, you know, I think one of the things that Deleuze tries to do for us in explicating Nietzsche's is, is show the ways in which that resentiment is not strictly a psychological phenomenon. Um, and perhaps that even this concept could even be explored or exploded, you know, to talk about the way a, a particular technological apparatus like, you know, this this uh, this radar system, this detection system that you talked about at the border, um, you know, could fail, you know, given, you know, the the the, the what is it? I, I mean, I use the term genocidal hubris, but that 
somebody could be so high on their supply of ideology that they could not interpret data coming into the core. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Also, yeah, go on. Just one final thing is that cybernetics and Tikkun actually pointed this out is for many ways it's also in, in the dream of the cybernetician, the sort of more liberal and rightist cyberneticist, it's an anti political ideology. So the system would work fine if we just keep getting some data in. So the cybernetic systems of regulating the actual border did not make account for politics. That's super interesting. And it's really interesting that you brought up Rizentema because another thing that I've been grappling with personally is the complete isolation, I feel, from the Israeli left. Mm. Um, there's also a very interesting discourse right now happening inside the Israeli left, right? Which is um, the betrayal that I feel from them is the betrayal that they feel from the international left. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the Israeli left failed to understand that the leftism that they're talking about is not the leftism of the international left, right? Because they want exactly what the Corbinites want, Adam, which is... Um, change with nothing changing, right? Um, so they don't act, their slogan is end the occupation, right? But when they say occupation, they mean the West Bank and Gaza. They're completely unwilling, or most of them are unwilling to talk about the Nakba 1948 and the entire right of return of Palestinians, right? So when the attack happened in, in October 7th, um, they were shocked by the support for the attack that um, international uh, leftists had. And I think I, I spoke about this on, on Death Sentence, right? And the, the mm-hmm. episode that you referenced, I think that international leftists that are cheering and, and seeing the death of um, people as something positive, pure positive, is a problem, right? I think that's a very simplistic way to look at reality. But on the other hand, the Israeli leftists that don't understand that without a right of return, um, there is no end to the occupation. There is like leftists who still think the two-state solution is anything other than dressed up apartheid um, are not willing to come to the full uh, to full reckoning with Israel and and how uh, and the reality of the of the state, which is all relevant to what we were talking about because it re- creates a very strong resentment inside mm. of them. Mm. Right? They feel like the future that they are fighting for has been stolen from them, right? And they resent that. To, to a very powerful degree. They want to imagine a world where they give up nothing and they can still, but they feel good about it, right? They feel that it's ethically justified. They want, like, they don't want to come to terms with the fact that Tel Aviv University was founded on the ruins of an, an Arab village, a Palestinian village, and they also want to keep going there for school, right? And, and don't bother me with, with the facts. Just give me this future of an ethical Israel. Right, that is their um, that is their desire, and and now, I'm, and another thing. Sorry that I'm ranting now, but another thing I wanted to say. I spoke about this with a lot of people in Israel, leftists and not leftists. Like Hamas is one. Nothing that Israel does now can change the fact that the October seventh attack was incredibly successful, and one of its successes is to say, no, that future cannot come to pass. There, there is no ethical Israel. There is no an ethical continuation of the 48 expulsion, right? Um, and, and all those des- desires that it is nixed are now coming to the, to the front. Um, I guess I don't have a question, but what, like, what is that? <laughs> how does that meet you? And, and the idea of resentment, like 
um, how we, we perceive reality and the futures that we try to bring to, to pass. Well, I'll say first that <clears throat> both Adam and I listened to your episode uh, about that and actually left quite an impression on us. And we talked <laughs> about it behind the scenes. And I think, well, and there's something perhaps that we can talk about offline later, but I think the discourse that you uh, provided was was quite useful. And I think, yeah, I mean, in our reading group with Nietzsche last night, we just talked about the way in which there is no way to completely disentangle the ethical from the political. And I think the hinge point is resentment, is resentment, actually, the, the, the concept of resentment yeah. in the sense that, for one, if we're going to be dredging up facts about the past, they all must come to light. But, but the problem is the framework with which these facts are being viewed. You know whether it's the the liberal left framework of of the Israelis or even the the, the putative leftists and communists uh, on the side of Israelis and and the international left uh, broadly construed the question of you know how to live together um, in peace and to acknowledge for example that the oppressions that not only the workers but migrants and so on and so forth feel comes about due to a set of political coordinates that must be undermine whole cloth, right? Like our, our paradigm must completely shift here. There is no sort of justice tit for tat, you know, these half measures, you know, keeping what you have and then, um, you know, maybe adding a little bit here, a little bit there and calling it justice. Because I think the, that then promises us that these resentments will bubble up yet again. Something at the level of ethics, something at the level of consciousness needs to happen so that those living in Israel identify you know, the, the, the root of the problem, you know, and in here I'm talking about Israeli citizens and their supporters in the West and so on and so forth. Um, and I mean, I know that you're, you're coming from uh, largely a Marxist perspective, um, but I, I, I would have to say that, you know, considering what I heard on your last episode, I'm, I'm, I'm just about 85 to 90% there with you, maybe even 95%. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, one of the things I appreciated so much about when we, we discussion of bewilderment is particularly, particularly this idea of, well, this is the way in which, you know, you don't start off with moral clarity, you start off with material clarity, and then there's a dialectical unfolding of the informing of morals and political stances based on that. I mean, it, just thinking about particularly, I mean, there's, there's a limit sometimes I reach with Nietzsche. And I'm sorry, yeah, I'm not sorry to use Nietzsche to talk about this issue because I think it's a very good way of jumping off. But there's, pick it on this idea of revenge, you know. The mm -hmm. Nietzsche's bigot enemy is vengeance, and there's a sense in which, you know, who 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 is one who is taking vengeance, who is one taking vengeance for? And then at the same time, I can't help but think of this phrase from the 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 the, the, the Irish revolutionary um, murdered due to hunger strike in a British prison, Bobby Sands, who says, you know, our revenge will be the laughter of our children, and that's kind of a transfiguration, an affirmation of of the revenge he so disliked. And maybe it's compatible with Nietzsche in some way, but that's not really what matters and in terms of the, the idea from material reckoning of the material preconditions of israeli existence and indeed material preconditions of for example american existence you know because to to, to say in a way that the us's of genocide of the indigenous peoples is somehow complete and is therefore an object we can therefore retrospectively look back upon with somewhat distance is the raising you know for example the, the oil pipelines and the water defenders and the very things are still ongoing today in terms of the position the Israeli, I mean, it's, it's of course, when it comes to resentment, I mean, when it comes to Nietzsche's idea of, you know, active and reactive, to be reactive is to be cut off from what you can do. And then this abstract flattening of, you know, 
every settler is fair game. It's all justice. Everyone for everyone else. You know, why don't we just kill those guys? Which it, it is this kind of flashing, and I think to some extent there is somewhat of a oh, this is gonna be trouble. There's gonna be somewhat of a resentment, particularly amongst some because one of the things <laughs> that brought Corbin down was kind of the whole uh, the immediate narrative of yeah, the anti-Semitism, which is of course incredibly inflated by yeah, not not exist, and then. And there's sort of a sense in which I see on the British left of the the, the, the you know it's like the, the Tories' favourite country, the Labour's favourite country, you know, as which being the Israelis inside a project. The sense in which these guys coloured, you know, we this was stolen from us to an extent um, by a conclusion yeah. of this geopolitical alliance. And I'm like, this guys, no, we need to be more material about this. There's clarity, there's clarity here. There's let's not just throw ourselves into this. Yeah, we can still yeah. do all the same things. Not not to go too deep into into like UK politics, but I think like. Trying to understand the state of the modern uh, English left without talking about the incredible feelings of resentment and guilt and and revenge that they feel over the British occupation and empire and so on is is an exercise in futility, right? Like you can only understand the you know intense desire to align themselves with Israel over those feelings, which is of course bad. Okay, we could do a whole episode on this. I think it's really interesting. And the idea of re- revenge or revenge, if you want to use the actual term, like um, in Israeli politics is, is fascinating. Also, by the way, we're not equipped to do it, but also in Palestinian politics. And that could be super interesting, like talking to Palestinians and, and, and how they perceive the, these ideas of, of revenge and, and the role of violence in them and so on. Um, but I think, like you said, Greg, like the 95% agreement, we, we all agree that the liberal... Um, uh, recoil from any kind of violence is is absurd, right? It only yeah. serves the apparatus that codifies which which um, which violence is legitimate. So so, but but not doing that full episode, <laughs> kind of spinning off into the the third like actually existing thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I don't know if you've played Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven mm-hmm. or watched Edge Runners or participated in this. There seems to be a resurgence of Cyberpunk right now, that mm-hmm. has been going on for a while, but has kind of come to a, a peak, a fever, in the last two or three years um, with the release of the, the Cyberpunk 2077, which was much more than a game, right? It was a social phenomenon. It had it spun off its own show and so on. Um, what do you feel about this? How do you feel about the state of Cyberpunk today and the disconnect between, maybe, between what you define as Cyberpunk in Anti-Oculus and what is the colloquial usage of the word cyberpunk. So in terms of the game Cyberpunk 2077, and I can't not plug my appearance on All Gamers Are Bastards oh, about yeah. this about this game. Um, the most cyberpunk thing about Cyberpunk 2077 is the conditions under which it was produced. <laughs> yeah. um, under severe crunch, precarity, um, technological surveillance, key logging, but nonetheless, I mean, Edge Runners, the anime, was actually far more better, if far better at presenting the world of cyberpunk. Because in Cyberpunk 2077, you know, you uh, you don't have to pay rent, uh, you don't have to, you don't, you don't need healthcare, and yet it said that everyone needs to subscribe to Trauma Team for their healthcare, and there's like different passes of healthcare. And in in the anime, it's you're not thrown in with this immortal being with Keanu Reeves inside you. You're thrown with a a kid whose mum has to work like four jobs to get him into a good school and then facing that one material support being dropped out. And the, the corporate interest that try to make the regulation of his body into something to serve their own development and the production of data. I mean, the revival of cyberpunk, I think, I mean, so I remember reading recently William Gibson's book. It's called Distrust That Particular Flavor. 
Mm-hmm. It's his uh, sort of section of essays and the essays he's done, which he introduces again, sort of with a kind of retrospective on it. And he keeps talking about how he doesn't understand the technology he writes about, you know. But he also says that London has a very cyberpunk affect to it, which is very close to Japan. And London, I mean, absolutely. You've got this thing called Outernet we have now, which is just this giant, you know, it's, it's, it's a very cyberpunk city. I mean, there's plenty, I mean, there's also a hugely amount, a huge amount of amazing Japanese food, which just complements the slightly orientalist aesthetic. Um, <laughs> in terms of research of cyberpunk narratives, I mean, I, I don't keep up with the fiction that much. I mean, recently we had Corey J. White's Repo Virtual. Yeah. Uh, they're a pretty good new cyberpunk writer. We have the resurgence of William Gibson properties in the media. And even though that Criterion had like an AI season, I think that cyberpunk is on the brains of a lot of people, particularly with the marketing, because the marketing, the image of cyberpunk that the tech was going to get is still, I mean, in, in the era of low interest rates, people got free money to promote any startup they wanted. They only had to sell the image. And they solved it through cyberpunk. I mean, the cybertruck. What's cybernetic about the fucking cybertruck? Absolutely fuck. The only thing cybernetic <laughs> about the cybertruck is the steering wheel, because that's what the cyber thing is. But it's yeah. the aesthetic is returning, but I nonetheless think it's good to think about in terms of how much of cyberpunk fiction, for example, like Neuromancer, is a discourse of healthcare. And for example, like uh, Case, he has these sacks in his body. He has to go into cyber. He has to become this crook. Well, another, again, you know, to become the cyberspace raider to to maintain his nervous system. And in terms of the struggles of healthcare today and what we can do with our bodies, particularly, for example, I mean, I think endocrinological um, regulation is the big one here. For example, access to HRT, access to gender-affirming care, and and we feel forget this endocrinological thing as well, insulin. My God, is insulin like the, the, the... the 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 apparatus par ex not apparatus the commodity par excellence of our contemporary cyberpunk way i think aesthetically we're there but politically we're more there than ever before it's also administered like today by um pumps right which are you know it's more than taking a pill or something inside Mm. your body that's regulating um a a substance and it's in its levels um the second thing i wanted to say is uh repo virtual self-plug i have another podcast called anarchy sf um, and we talked about Repo Virtual, uh, uh, a really good book. I really enjoyed it. Um, and White in general has really interesting things um, to say. Craig, do you want to add anything to that like cyberpunk resurgence discussion? I, I just think it's interesting. I mean, I'm a bit older, so I, I come from the days of, of watching uh, Fist of the North Star and Akira on like the one video that everybody had at the local video store. <laughs> and so my introduction to cyberpunk was through, you know, the the early, or at least the 80s Japanese animation, chunky technology and so forth. And I I, I just juxtapose that to what's happening in, you know, Black Mirror, for example, how some of, you know, portrayals of cybernetics has rendered it to a kind of banality. Um, And in some sense, that's where the terror lies. I think the most terrifying, um, you know, literary renderings of, of cybernetics shows, you know, the utter approximation um, of that, the fictional cybernetic reality to what's possible, not anytime far in the future, but perhaps next week or a month from now, or, you know, what's happening with AI images, for example. Like, I, I abstain from a lot of the moralizing that happened with the deployment of AI imagery, in large part because I knew that at some point, the the technology of AI imagery was one going to improve in some ways. 
And also it was going to sink beneath the surface to the point where it couldn't be moralized in the same way. And there is this kind of tendency where, you know, a, a new technological apparatus or innovate, cybernetic innovation or technological innovation comes on the scene. There's a kind of moral recoil to it, but then it sort of diffuses into the sort of larger cybernetic skin. And to me, I, I think that's interesting. I think the horizon of, of theory, the horizon of literature involves, you know, addressing the, the sort of banality of it but also the ways in which I think, you know, new technologies and new innovations, you know, completely dissolve into the, the current milieu. And we're suddenly we're not talking about them anymore. They become they become obvious, right? And normal yeah. and visible, right. which is what the system wants to do to all of its uh, arms and, and, and mechanisms. Mm. OK, there's like 20 more things that I want to talk to you guys about, and we can definitely have you back on. Um, but I kind of left the most difficult question for last. Uh-oh. And that is kind of hinted in your introduction um, where you say, in fact, we have no interest in producing something that would only be a new program to police string bodies, proliferate proper images of thought, or peddle updated categories of surveillable subjects. And when I was reading that, I was thinking about your perspectives on what is um, sometimes derogatorily, sometimes not, refer to in online circles as actual existing socialism. Mm. Right? For example, uh, Cuba, um, Vietnam, um, and the ghost from the past, the USSR. Right? So when I read this, I read a criticism in the, right, of some of these systems as merely taking existing systems of identification, categorization, surveillance, and so on, and just, like you said, Adam, saying the people's in front of it, right? The people's security apparatus, the people's surveillance mechanism. Um, and then I caught myself and I said, wait, are, is this actually what's being said, or are you like reading into it sort of critique that you've um, encountered in the past? So I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think about these existing systems of state control um are there is there cybernetics better is it the same is it worse what do you what do you feel like they haven't done they have done like how how do these kind of uh systems of political control work into your theory and your perception of these ideas so i'm going to be uh, i'm going to save my ass by talking about the history of soviet cyberneticists instead <laughs> no no um so, particularly, so the Soviets never actually big on cybernetics, really. Um, for example, I mean Bogdanov was the was the guy who invented this idea of technology. Was very an early systems theorist. Was very much uh, lost in terms of the battle of control of the Bolshevik Party to Lenin. Cybernetics was seen as a bourgeois science. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's invented by the U.S. military industrial complex. Well, at least adopted and promoted by them. Fair enough. And there was this term towards the end of the Soviet Union, where the computers were going to save it. The problem is, is that they didn't know how to produce desire, only to respond to it with their cybernetic systems. Everyone say, okay, we want this. And then by the time you produced 550,000 bloody tons of it, everyone's moved on to another thing. Um, a cybernetic, I, mean, every, also, I mean, in terms of the problem with cybernetics as a way of viewing the world is once you start looking at things in terms of feedback loops and that, it does kind of overcode a lot of the other ways of reading it, which is one of the problems with cybernetics as a field. I mean, it's not a book on 
Antiochus is a book about escape, not capture. So he wants to put, take you to the, the edge of these apparatuses in order to, in some extent, stand outside them, provide historical examples. Uh, the Asian Revolution, disability activism, anti-raids groups, the kettling of the police in various riots and stuff. In terms of passing judgment on the history of socialist states, um, well, that's, that's always a fun one, isn't it? Um, <laughs> that's why I left it to the end. Yeah. I left it to the end because it's a fun we, one. <laughs> we didn't want to leave, we don't want to make a program in the sense of we wanted to give people conceptual tools to mediate various ways of escaping the policing which they're already encountering, which is a material presupposition of their social uh, limits in terms of what they can become, what they can be, and where they can go. We didn't want to essentially say, here's a new model of this, here's a new program, we're telling you what to do from our from the seat of our microphones. We thought the best thing to do in terms of our help to any extant movements would be to provide conceptual toolkits. We wouldn't want to be the intellectual cadre that somehow, you know, convinces the revolutionary masses on our behalf. I mean, that's a history of um, Trotskyist masturbation. You know, it's it's not particularly helpful or productive or useful in terms of, I mean, it, I can't help have a, a certain, uh, my, anarchist, my anarchist side of me is currently fighting the other side of me. I mean, the feedback mechanisms of Cuba in terms of their parliamentary representation and their own ways they've developed, I can't help but feel a sort of romantic sympathy and solidarity there, and it's not one I'm simply going to throw out on the basis of an abstract anarchism. Fair enough. And also, of course, the the, the hovering thing, of course, of your question earlier about Fisher too, is a legacy of, of cybersynth. And I'm like, yeah. I ain't gonna turn down a fucking cybersynth. Like, no, 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 the, the anarchy goes out the window as soon as it, well, you, you just it's worked. You know, a, a decentralized anarchy. There's going to be problems there of any cybernetic system which want to point out. But I mean, I was actually talking to a James Fox, another cyberneticist, on the show a while back, and he reintroduces actually this kind of stopgap of metaphor to cybernetics. You know, the the fact that any map is useful on the basis that it's wrong, uh, it's, it's ultimately going to be wrong. And in terms of uh, state cyberneticians, I mean, states tend to, uh, insofar as cybernetics typically feed forward and uh, feedback negatively they tend to preserve themselves they change things and stay the same and so i think a healthy skepticism especially of state control i mean especially a soviet model which couldn't even respond to internal problems that that well i mean it was 80 years um you know 80 years a couple of rockets and the first moscow on red square i mean it was it wasn't a very good at responding to internal problems and then eventually got so impute the nomenclature gained so much impunity that in a similar way, they couldn't see the wood for the trees and it all came crashing yeah. down. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, to add to that, I, of course, I'm going to dodge the question in my own unique way. Um, <laughs> but I, I think something that we've already brought up in the discussion needs to be on the table when, when addressing that question, which is the nature of desire itself. You're talking about the left liberals or the left in, in Israel um, who want to keep the extant state of political affairs, the boundaries, the institutions, and so forth, and develop a solution moving forward. And I think with respect to cybernetics and you know the emulation, for example, of previous forms of socialism or what can be recovered from them, I think one of the challenges, if you adopt this abolitionist framework, which I, I think, you know, loosely speaking or, or broadly construed, this is what we're doing in the book, is, is introducing a, a form of abolitionism is that um, we can't keep all the treats and get the new future, <laughs> right? You can't keep the treats of the borders that you have. You know, you, there has to be some movement and involution of collective desire to the extent that what we want 
is is desired in the same way that we desire the treats of capitalism. This is one of the things that Guattari was up against at the end of his life. And I think this also, you know, spawns the accelerationist question. Great. Capitalism made all these things. And here we come, the new technocrats to sort of reorganize it and show how we can do it better. Clearly, this is a, you know, for us, this is not a tenable position. This is a position that was abandoned by some of the very people who put it forward. And so I think what we're doing is exploring the other side of the the left political divide is, you know, what is it like to destitute these systems? And what are the kinds of things that can emerge outside of a programmatics? You know, what is the diagram that we can construct in virtue of this abolitionist framework, meaning finding ways out? And what are the forms of life that are then produced through the destitution or involution of these, these institutions? And if you want me to put a finer point on that and, and sort of, um, you know, denude it of theoretical language, I would say, no, finding something outside of the state. No, finding something outside of the current models and institutions that that we are so that are so revered, and that maybe we're trying to reclaim from you know their their bourgeois pretensions and 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 color them red, you know, as we were saying, I, I think there is definitely a, a worthwhile project in in avoiding doing that. Hundred percent. I think I'll I'll capstone this discussion, which will capstone the entire episode. I think. You know, there's a contradiction that I um I don't talk about a lot on this podcast, which I think this conversation brings to mind is that I'm not an anarchist mm-hmm. hosting an anarchist podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing with Anarchy SF. I'm like kind of um, in disguise. I mean, my joke is always that I'm a centrist. I'm in the center between anarchism and more authoritative versions of communism, right? That's my centrism. Mm-hmm. Um and I think these. This is why I'm not saying this is a negative thing. I'm saying it is a positive mm-hmm. thing because that contradiction leads to my desire to one day find the diagram method way of life that takes the things that I love and agree with about anarchy, and specifically, by the way, your type of anarchy, like a mm-hmm. Foucauldian anarchy, which is about mm-hmm. becoming something new, something else, something radical, something different. Which I think is also the anarchy that you see in science fiction, right? Of mm-hmm new forms of life and humanity and bodies and existence and love and so on, and the more structured, cybernetic, authoritative uh, paradigms that I think are essential to actually create the conditions necessary for the manifestation of something like that at all, at any time Mm -hmm. in in Mm -hmm. the future. And that's the tension that I have to live with. And again, in a good way, it creates my desire to interact with these ideas and to read about them. And I think, again, to capstone this entire thing, the issue is with ideologies that try to stem me and, and stop that desire to interact, to explore, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. think about how systems can be resisted and gone beyond, right? And made destitute, which I think is a really interesting term. That's the problem. And on both sides of the political spectrum, which remember, my political accepted spectrum is anarchy versus Marxism, Leninism. The, mm-hmm. the right wing is irrelevant, right? They're completely unacceptable. I don't want to talk about them. So we need to face any ideology that says, don't talk about these things. Right? <laughs> Don't talk about your desires. Don't talk about how to be and, and live and so on. Okay, it's death sentence, so we can't end without music, right? Um, I've, I've already pre-selected, of course, uh, something. Before that, I really want to thank you, Adam and Craig, for coming on this show and for having me on Asset Horizon. It's some of the most fun things that I've done. Um, and those discussions uh, keep informing my thoughts and so on. So I, I'm deeply appreciative of you, and I can't wait to finish Anti-Oculus. 
because um, there's, there's a lot in there and reread it and annotate it and all that good stuff. Thank you so much uh, for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we really appreciate you. And, and we talk about you a lot. So if your ears are ringing, um, that's, that's, good. that's why. <laughs> good. Uh, now let's do music. So there really was, wasn't any other choice because one of my favorite um, black metal bands on the planet from the US released two albums uh, last week. Uh, these guys are called Exulensis. And they have this really talented violinist called Andrea Morgan uh, with them. And they work violin into their black metal. And they do kind of like that. I really hate the term Cascadian because some mm. really problematic elements of politics use the term Cascadian. Um, but when it's used from a leftist perspective, it ties into eco ecological ideas and um, biodiversity and regionality and so on. So these guys are very much Cascadian black metal in the heritage of Wolves in the Throne Room. and Panopticon and Falls of Rawrus and all these guys. And they released two albums, as I said. One is called um, Hymns of Collapse, which is a folk album. Um, has violin and guitar and banjo and lap guitar and, and stuff like that. And the other one is Overtures of Uprising, which is um, full-on US black metal. And as you can tell from the names, they are anarchists and leftists and explore these ideas in their work. So I'm going to play the title track, um, Overtures of Uprising. If you've enjoyed this discussion, dear listener, please go and uh, get Anti-Oculus, A Philosophy of Escape from Repeater Books um, and read it. I think it's fascinating. Um, and we will see you next time. Please enjoy Excellences' Overtures of Uprising. Bye-bye.